Welcome to episode 32 of History of the Marine Corps. The United States sailed to the West Indies. Our last episode explored American politics towards the end of the 18th century. The political controversy was a crucial phase for the United States and introduced the challenge of international diplomacy. We also briefly discussed the XYZ affair and the passing of the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. This episode detours from the politics, and we discuss the Navy and Marine Corps during the start of this war. We'll talk about the construction of a couple of new frigates, weapons used, and take a look at the USS Constellation and how she performed in her first battle at sea. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. We left our last episode with Adams and the political problems he was facing with France and the two American political parties. Secretary of War, James McHenry, spent most of his time dealing with naval administration, which pushed other military matters to the side. Congress created the Department of the Navy to dedicate resources for military operations at sea. The Department of the Navy's primary mission was to protect the U.S., but at the time, the Navy didn't have operational ships to fight the French. Congress authorized the construction of six frigates to help with this problem. Naval ships of this time had enormous weapons. The typical barrel length for cannons was between 9 or 10 feet long, and each one weighed more than 2 tons. The caliber of most weapons today is measured by the internal diameter of the bore. In the 18th century, it was based on the weight of the round that it fired. Frigates were one of the largest naval vessels and carried 18 or 24 pounders. Built with speed and maneuverability in mind, they were able to cause a lot of damage at sea. Army units would team up with naval forces and use these large cannons instead of standard artillery. This was extremely helpful during amphibious landings or if a target is simply within range. At the time, the standard size of an artillery round was 6 pounds. The ability to launch munitions far beyond the scope and power of army units was a significant advantage in war. And firing rounds 3 to 4 times larger than standard artillery was the icing on the cake. During an 1812 battle between the British frigate Macedonian and the American frigate the United States, a powder boy described the sound as, quote, like some awfully tremendous thunderstorm, whose deafening roar is attended with streaks of lightning, carrying death in every flash. Huge clouds of smoke were released when the cannons fired, and the recoil of these cannons could kill anyone who was in the way. After firing, teams as large as 12 men would reload again as quickly as possible. Each man had a job to do, and there was an emphasis on the importance of time. Someone had to sponge out the borehole, grab the gunpowder, bound the powder in a cloth cartridge, ram everything down the barrel, pack a wad on top of the powder, add the cannonball, and add another wad on top of that. After the cloth was pierced and priming powder poured into the touch hole, the men of the gun crew would push the cannon into place through a porthole on the ship. The gun captain would aim 
and give the order to fire when ready. Once the order was given, someone would light the primer, the cannon would fire, and everyone would go through the steps again. The faster a ship could fire off a second shot, the more damage they could do. Rate of fire was one of the top factors that made Great Britain's Royal Navy one of the best naval forces in the world. It wasn't their weapons. Most ships in European navies had the same hardware. It was their rate of fire. A well-trained British Navy could get two to three broadsides off compared to a single shot by the enemy. Round shot was the most widely used ammunition and is the typical cannonball you picture. They were used to concentrate the firepower on a single point and were very useful when a hole was needed in the enemy's ship. A cannonball through the hull of a ship would cause the vessel to take water, decrease speed, and draw enemy forces away from the cannons and main deck and towards the hull for repair. Even if the cannonball didn't pierce the hull, the splinters created by the impact would severely injure or kill anyone working within a 15 meter radius. Round shot wasn't the only type of ammunition used in naval warfare. Grape shot was also popular and used multiple baseball sized ammunition wrapped in canvas. When fired, the grape shot would spread out causing more damage. Canister shots were also frequently used. As the name implies, canisters were used and they were filled with pistol ball ammunition. Canister shots created an airborne claymore-like weapon when fired. Sailors would sometimes heat the ammo until it was red hot before launching into the enemy. Canister and grape shot were used to destroy the riggings of a ship, but they were extremely effective at taking out men in the process. I'll have pictures up on historyofthemarinecorps.com if you want to see what grape shot and canister shot look like. Positioned on top of the mast, on a swaying vessel, with little to no protection, were the marines. The main purpose of marines in the topmast was to use their smoothbore muskets and fire down onto enemy decks. Although rifling did exist, barrel rifling didn't become commonplace until the 19th century. A smooth barrel meant that marines were using weaponry with relatively low velocity and were incredibly inaccurate. But even with the rocking ship, little protection, a lot of commotion, and an imprecise weapon, Marines were known for their accuracy. Congress passed the Protection of the Commerce and Coast of the United States Act on May 28, 1798, and that kicked off the quasi-war with France. This act gave public armed vessels of the United States permission to take French ships found hovering on the coast of the United States and retake any ships seized by French privateers. On July 11, 1798, Congress formally established the United States Marine Corps, and the very next day, President John Adams commissioned William Ward Burroughs as a major and the first official commandant of the United States Marine Corps. Burroughs was born in Charleston, South Carolina, on January 16, 1758, and fought in the American Revolution as a militiaman. Burroughs demanded high standards of professional performance and personal conduct of his officers. His strict requirements of discipline and professionalism have become hallmarks of the Corps. With the addition of Burroughs, the Marine Corps was still relatively small. The authorized strength of the Marine Corps was about 881, 
33 officers, and 848 enlisted. The first U.S. Secretary of the Navy was Benjamin Stoddart. As soon as Congress established the Marines, Stoddart began operations in the Caribbean to let the French know that the United States had the determination and the ability to take on French privateers. The Marines immediately got to work and were assigned to a few vessels patrolling the waters. In August, Marines on board the USS United States participated in the capture of the French privateer Le Sans Parai off the coast of Puerto Rico. About two weeks later, the same ship captured another French privateer, the Jalouse, in the same area. On February 3, 1799, Marines were serving on board the frigate United States, and the crew spotted a strange sail between Martinique and Barbados. The USS United States was one of six frigates authorized to be built by Congress in 1794, and the first American warship launched under the naval provisions of the Constitution. Naval architect Joshua Humphreys designed the ship, and she cost 300,000 pounds to construct. Humphreys designed her to compete against the European naval fleet. Weighing in at 1,576 tons, the United States was built with extremely heavy planking to increase the strength of her hull. She was armed with 32 24-pounders and backed by 24 42-pounders and usually staffed with 600 sailors and marines. This frigate was big and powerful. The ship spotted was the L'Amour de la Patrie, a six-gun schooner belonging to a French privateer. It was eight in the morning and the American frigate started to give chase. By 1500, the Americans caught up with her, and to everyone's surprise, the L'Amour de la Patrie attempted to gain the tactical advantage and started to get windward directly under the United States battery. This move was a mistake by the French, and the American frigate fired three 24-pound shots at her. The third shot hit the French schooner at the waterline and went right through the hull. The United States attempted to close the distance from the sinking ship. As she approached, they spotted the crew of the schooner stripping off their clothes and diving into the water. The French ship was sinking, fast. Stephen Decatur was sent to take command of the sinking prize, but realized it was too late. He instructed the Frenchmen to put their helm up and try to steer towards the American frigate. The French crew was able to keep their ship afloat long enough to get within cable length of the United States. 58 French sailors were rescued. When the French captain came on board, he noticed the American flag. He asked Decatur, Is that a ship of the United States? Decatur confirmed that it was, and the French captain responded, I am very much astonished, sir. I did not know the United States was at war with the French Republic. Decatur fired back. No, sir, but you knew the French Republic was at war with the United States, that you were taking our merchant vessels every day and crowding our countrymen into prisons at Bastère to die like sheep. Shortly after the USS United States sunk the French ship, nearby Marines on board the USS Constellation were participating in their own battle. The Constellation was another one of the original six heavy frigates and designed by the same architect. Joshua Humphreys. Weighing in at 1,265 tons, she was rated for 38 24-pounders, 
but usually carried more. Her crew sighted another vessel on the horizon. The ship spotted was sailing with an American flag. Confused, the American frigate moved closer to the unknown ship to investigate. As the constellation approached, the American colors were lowered and the French fired a shot. According to the French Captain Barreau, he ordered the shot leeward to indicate to the Americans that he wanted to communicate. However, Truxton, the American captain, claimed the shot was fired windward to signal a fight. Regardless of the intent, Americans thought they were under attack and began to give chase. After an hour into the pursuit, strong winds destroyed the topmast of the French ship. This damage allowed the constellation to close in on the French vessel. The Americans were within 50 yards and opened up on her with a broadside. This volley of rounds significantly damaged the French ship. The enemy returned fire at the constellation and damaged one of her topmasts. The French noticed the men on the constellation attempting to repair the damages and tried to take advantage of the opportunity by closing in on the frigate and attempting to board. The Americans were able to avoid this raid and rake the enemy with another broadside. The constellation was now within pistol shot of the French. As she sailed by, Truxton was close enough to see the French captain calling for a parlay. But Truxton didn't bother to reply to the French. In his mind, they were at war. The French government authorized privateers to attack American commerce, and French privateers were hunting down American merchantmen. A negotiation was out of the question, and the French captain could either fight or surrender. The damage to the French was substantial. The Americans took a play out of the British's naval warfare handbook and fired directly into the hull of the ship, one by one, forward to aft. Marines were positioned in the topmast and fired down towards the enemy's deck. Their shots were accurate, and the decks of the French vessel were covered in blood from the dead and wounded. This battle was intense, and it terrified a lot of the French crew. French officers seemed to no longer have command of their men, because many of them were dropping their guns and running towards the captain's cabin. But despite the severe damage and the fleeing men, the captain called for a crew and ordered them to board the Constellation. They weren't successful, and the Marines picked off the raiding party. Now the ships ran parallel to each other, and continued to trade cannonball for cannonball. The battle started to get intense for the crew on the Constellation as well. Neil Harvey, an American serving on one of the gun crews, was overwhelmed with panic and ran from his gun. His commander was Lieutenant Andrew Sterrett, a 21-year-old from Baltimore. When Sterrett saw the man run, he drew a sword, chased him, and killed him. There's a story about one of the Constellation's 24-pound balls smashing through the hull of the French ship, dismounting a gun, damaging the carriage of a second cannon, and killing several men in the process. As the ball rolled to a stop, it was picked up by a French officer and carried to Captain Barreau as proof that they were outgunned. Throughout this whole battle, the Constellation received little damage. She moved into position and set herself up for another broadside. The French ship was a mess. The main topsail had fallen over. The spanker was destroyed. Several cannons were destroyed. 
sails were cut to pieces, and the ship was covered with holes. On top of the damage to the ship, French casualties were heavy. As the French captain looked across the main deck, he saw only one man standing. With little option, the French captain surrendered the ship. The Constellation had four casualties, three of which died. John Andrews was shot through both of his legs. George Water broke his back by the wind of a cannonball. Samuel Wilson had his leg shot off and eventually died from his wounds. And Neil Harvey was killed for cowardice. Barreau warned Truxton that the diplomatic consequences of this attack would be severe. The two countries weren't officially at war, and when the news reached Paris, he claimed the French government would issue a declaration of war. But this threat didn't scare Truxton or the Americans. Truxton countered by saying that the French ship herself had taken part in the capture of the American schooner retaliation. Their own logbook also documented several American merchant ships that she seized. This attack caused a lot of controversies, and the governor of Guadalupe sent a messenger to Truxton, demanding him to return the French ship. Truxton rejected this demand, and said he will continue to attack any French armed vessel found in the area until ordered by the President of the United States to stop. But despite the carnage of the battle, and the reservations held by political leaders, the French prisoners were treated pretty well. After this event, Captain Barreau wrote a letter to Truxton, thanking him for the humane treatment. His letter said, You have united the two qualities which characterize a man of honor, courage and humanity. Receive from me the most sincere thanks, and be assured I shall make it a duty to publish to all my fellow citizens the generous conduct which you have observed towards us. Barreau gave Truxton a plume from his hat as a small token of appreciation. The Constellation and her new prize arrived in Hampton Roads on May 20th. They raised the French flag below the American colors to display the captured ship. The vessel and flags were displayed for three days and the citizens loved it. This battle was a big deal for the town of Norfolk. The town leadership prepared a welcome dinner for the captain and his crew, held a parade of local militia companies, and fired a 16-round rifle salute. This victory was also published in most newspapers, and theaters performed sketches and sang songs about the success of the Americans. Businesses took advantage of this victory as well, and sold ornaments and other souvenirs commemorating the battle. Some even sold Truxton hats to the public. Alexander Hamilton attended the dinner himself, and even English merchants showed their support by raising 500 guineas to commission a silver urn for Truxton. There were mixed feelings in Philadelphia, though. Some politicians believed that this attack would cause a conflict between France and the United States to escalate. However, President Adams was happy with this attack. He stated, I wish all the other officers had as much zeal as Truxton. A Navy agent was sent to examine the prize and assessed her value at $120,000. Truxton attempted to collect this amount as prize money, but the Secretary of the Navy understood the condition of the ship and thought this value was too high. Stoddart read the survey report. He realized the damage and asked Naval Architect Humphreys to provide his estimate. Humphreys came back with $84,500, 
and Stoddard offered this amount to Truxton, which he accepted. After commissions and expenses, Truxton raked in a cool $8,000. That's a ridiculous amount of money for the time. If we account for inflation, that will be more than $2 million today. Unfortunately, many of the enlisted men sold their share to speculators for significantly lower than their value. Marines continued to show their importance at sea and participated in the capture of Cicero and the Le Ami. To quote Admiral Farragut, A ship without Marines is like a coat without buttons. President Adams must have felt the same. And he approved legislation that established the authorized strength of the Marine Corps as one major, 40 other officers, and 1,044 enlisted. Next week, we'll take a look at the Marines on board the Constellation, this time during their battle with La Vengeance. This will be another impressive battle and will earn the Constellation the nickname the Yankee Racehorse. We'll also introduce the oldest post in the United States Marine Corps and the official resident of the Commandant of the Marine Corps since 1806. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll take a look at a few more naval battles and introduce the oldest post in the United States Marine Corps, 8th and I. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.